0: This big. Nobody really knows for sure how high, and it's a it's, uh,
1: it's capped with an elaborate headpiece in the shape of the sun with a crystal in the center. And what you did was you take the staff to a special room in
2: Tadness, a map room with a miniature of the city all laid out on the floor. And if you put the staff in a certain place at a certain time of day, the sun shone through here and made a beam that came down on the
1: floor here and gave you the exact location of the Well of the Souls where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, right? Which is exactly what the Nazis are looking for. Now, what does this Ark look like? Uh, There's a picture of it right here. That's it. Good God. Yes, that's just what the Hebrews thought. Uh, now what's that supposed to be coming out of there? Lightning, fire, power of God or something. You need to understand Hitler's interest in this. Oh, yes. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible.
3: students at marshall college everywhere this is blast points this is indie year this is jason and this is gabe this week we are so happy to finally have on blast points a star wars legend a lucasfilm legend an indiana jones legend just a legend in general dr david west reynolds if that name sounds familiar to you it should he's had his hands in so much of what we love in Star Wars. He created the visual dictionaries. He wrote the original trilogy visual dictionary, the episode one visual dictionary, the episode two visual dictionary. Cross sections books. As he's going to talk about here, he traveled across Tunisia and the world, finding locations from the original filming of Star Wars. Then he went back with Rick McCallum to scout locations for episode one. He got it, He started working at Lucasfilm after that. And probably the only thing equal to his star Wars
2: legendary status is his Indiana Jones legendary status. And our heads are still spinning from our conversation with him about digging into the, the ultimate depths of Raiders
3: and Indiana Jones fandom. When we got done recording this episode, originally when we talked to Dr. Reynolds, I was in a daze for hours afterwards. I was just like, that was (laughs) so. So let's jump right into
2: our conversation with the amazing Dr. David West Reynolds.
3: aware of you reading Star Wars Insider and reading about your incredible adventures in Tunisia.
0: For me, it's just been so strange. It was never anything that I planned. It was so unexpected. It was such a bizarre path, and I've never seen it from the outside, so I have no idea what it looks like. I've been so busy on the inside of it. And, uh, I mean, that was just such a strange experience because when I did that, that expedition to Tunisia... That was because I was completing my PhD in archaeology at the University of Michigan, and I had done a really solid dissertation. It went over really well, but it didn't have a lot of fieldwork. And I felt like, as an archaeologist, I wanted to test myself with some serious fieldwork. My dissertation just didn't require it. I was working on a gigantic Roman map that one of the emperors had commissioned of the city of Rome. It was 40 feet tall, and it had every ground floor room in the city of Rome engraved into it. It was a spectacular thing, but I didn't need to do a bunch of fieldwork. Well, I thought a real archaeologist needs to have done some fieldwork to prove himself, and I had worked in Egypt on a project where we were tracing caravan routes between the Nile and the Red Sea, and these were 2,000-year-old caravan routes, and you could still track the places where the Romans had camped. And that really put in my mind that there must be something left in Tunisia from the film crews in 1976. The, de- the desert preserves everything. And even if it didn't, I just wanted to stand in those locations, and I had the power to do that because I'd worked in North Africa. So I set out on that project in Tunisia just to prove something to myself and to to stand in those locations for my personal satisfaction and prove that I was archaeologist enough to find these things, even though I couldn't find any record of anybody having tried anything like this anywhere before. So all of that was just a private experiment, and it was wonderfully successful. And along the way, I found the Tanis digs. And I went to Cairo on, which had been filmed as Cairo for Raiders. So I got the experience of of both the movies of Raiders and Star Wars. It was fantastic. And I found pieces of the well of souls and the map room and the flying wing and all of that. I mean, and and as far as I know, I was the first one to be there since the film crew left because the locals had no clue that anyone would ever want to go to that site. So all of that was just something that I did to satisfy a personal desire and meet a challenge. And I never dreamed that it would lead to working for Lucasfilm. So it was strange enough on the inside. I have no idea what that ended up looking like on the outside.
3: Well, that's amazing. That's kind of fascinating because I I had read so much about uh, hunting down of the Tatooine locations in Tunisia. But at the same time, you were also discovering Raiders history, too.
0: Yeah, and it was it was just great because I was at Star Wars Canyon on the rim and surveying things and spotting things in the in the valley below. But in the distance, on the horizon, I saw an oasis. And I had studied everything so carefully before setting out on the expedition because I knew once I'm there, I, you know, I don't have access to anything back home. So the only research I had was what I brought with me, either in my memory or in this research kit of pages that I'd made. And I saw that oasis, and I knew that was Tanis just by the signature of the palm trees. Wow. So seriously, from that distance, it was miles and miles away. But I said, that's Tanis," And the dinosaur hunter I was with, Michael Ryan, he was the only person crazy enough to go with me on this. And he served as my film crew. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, that's Tanis. I'm sure it's the, it's the palm trees, the way they overlap. And he said, you're not spotting this thing from four miles away. That's, you, you know, there's no way. And we, we finally go down to this place. You have to go off road to get there. And we're looking around. And he doesn't really even still believe me until we're at the map room. And I'm lining up the angles, and I'm picking up pieces of the map room that were still there, demolished in the hillside. And he, he, he just said, you, you study these movies to a degree that just is totally foreign to me. <laughs> <laughs> But it was tremendously rewarding because we, we get there and the cab driver is actually saying like, stuff like, Senor, we cannot go there. No, there no suspension we will come back from this alive. And I think, you know, we've got to press on. We've got to press on. And we go to the site and the storm starts whipping up. I swear. The, the wind starts coming up all this overcast rolls in and it's it's like we're getting closer and closer and the wind gets stronger and stronger as we get closer to the well of souls because i've got the map room just like in in the movie it's the easiest part of tanis to identify because there are all these low hills around it's all anonymous scenery how could i find where the well of souls was but i thought well i can find the well the, the map room because that's on a hillside that's very obvious From the map room, I can try and spot where the flying wing was landed because you can see the flying wing in the background from the map room. I go to the map room hillside. There's pieces of the map room smashed up in the hillside still. Yes, I'm there. And I look in the distance, and there's still a ring where the parking ring was for the flying wing. Oh, my God. So we head out over there, and from that point, I can triangulate back, and I'm thinking of the movie, you know, and find the the exact location of the Well of Souls. (laughs) And yes, we go there and I get to the well of souls and it's smashed into the ground and there's hieroglyphic fragments waiting for me. And the wind is just terrific. And it's like, are you serious? This is just unbelievable. It was just too much. So what what year is this? This is 90? 90... That was 95. That was May 95. And so John Bradley Snyder at the Insider, uh, I, I sent a report of the expedition to him. And he was just the classic. I mean, you know, as an archaeologist, you you do an expedition, you report on it to an appropriate journal. Well, who wants to know about my Star Wars expedition? I mean, the insider was all I had. So I try to be a good archaeologist. I send in my report. I say, you know, to the editor, what do you think? It's the only time a journal editor has ever called me back and reviewed my submission and said, dude, that rules! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was John's reaction, and that's what got the article into the magazine. And we always talked about doing something for Raiders, but there was just never space in the magazine. But but the discovery of Tannis was just as rewarding as the Star Wars places, and, and there were artifacts scattered that uh, were even, I mean, it it was, it was surprising that those were still there because the Tannis site had been deliberately demolished. The Star Wars sites had just been abandoned, but Tannis had been deliberately demolished. So it, it was all it was smashed up and there were just fragments here and there. But I got a, a nice hieroglyph of Anubis from the obelisk that uh, Norman Reynolds built for that scene. So that was great proof.
2: So when you were back with, as a Lucasfilm employee, to, to find the Star Wars locations again did they have you f- show them where the raiders locations were as well or is that they just did. okay
0: rick mccallum wanted to see it yeah he wanted to see everything because he he didn't really believe all of this until he started seeing it in the sand and <laughs> like i mean we you know we flew me over we meet we're doing all this stuff and i you know i have a map of locations to take him to and he just doesn't really quite believe it all until we get to the sand dunes and I say, yeah, there's the bones right there. And he's like, well, not the real, oh my God. <laughs> <And> <laughs> this profanity just starts coming out of his mouth. And he's like, no, I just didn't believe you the whole time, kid. I'm sorry, but I just didn't think this was possible.
3: Was it a, was it a little bit more colorful than that?
0: It was drastically more colorful than that. Rick McCallum lives life richly and fully and has a masterful command of profanity. And it was spectacular. (laughs) so it was it was such a shock because GPS was new back then and there was no Internet to speak of. So there wasn't anything like, you know, information that you could consult. I mean, this was just cutting edge. And I'm literally the only person in the world with these GPS coordinates. And so that's why when George Lucas wants that information to make the prequels, suddenly that's very valuable information. And that's why I get hired as a location scout and we meet up over there and do all this. But yeah, Rick wanted to see the Raiders site just because it was amazing that it was possible to find it. So it didn't really have any relevance for our scouting on Phantom Menace, but he wanted to see it. And he had a good time. He wanted me to show him every different part of it. So uh, we got the, we, we gave him the full tour.
3: I'm curious. You study archaeology you, you at the uh, University of Michigan, not too far from where I am right now. Obviously, you're a huge Indiana Jones fan. Among real archaeologists, what is the perception of Indiana Jones? I've always kind of wondered
0: that. Oh, they're embarrassed. Right? So Indiana Jones represents the tomb robber that was archaeology in the 19th century. So, towards the end of the 19th century, archaeology started to get more respectable, but our profession grew out of people wanting to fill their manor homes with artifacts. And as people got more discriminating and, you know, exactly what era do we want these artifacts from? Because there's the, there's the classical, there's the pre-classical, and there's the high classical, of course. You know, if we want these exactly from the right era, you know, you've got to have someone telling you what is precisely the right style. You don't want to be embarrassed. <laughs> so that's, that's what our profession was rooted in, was let's go loot the right artifacts so that we can fill the manor houses of the people that want to impress each other. It's only late in the game that we actually get interested in these civilizations. And so, you know, I'm, I am an archaeologist of the modern school. My quest is for information. And that's so true of me that I didn't bring back the Star Wars crate Dragon bones that I found in the Sahara. I left them there because I had actually come for the experience. I didn't come for treasure. So I found treasure. I mean, that's the actual crate dragon bones right there. And I, it was fantastic. I was thrilled. And I had a great time. And I was done. I didn't want to rob the site. So I, I really am an archaeologist at the modern school. And Indiana Jones represents an era that modern archaeologists are embarrassed about. And to me, it's just, hey, that's part of our history. That's who we used to be. And I'm glad we've made progress. But nobody else wanted to even admit to even ever having seen an Indiana Jones film. And I would go in and teach these courses and pull out a bullwhip. And I'd say, hey, gang, any, okay, freshmen out in the center quad, anybody who wants to learn how to crack a bullwhip, I'm going to be there Saturday at one o'clock. And I'd have 40 people. <laughs> and and my colleagues were just like, you know, trying to pretend like they didn't know me. So it's, uh, they wanted to put as much distance as possible. But I said, look, this is a way for us to communicate the what what's appealing in archaeology. I said, I could see the future in a way that they couldn't. And I said, our days are numbered as a field. This is going to go away. And they said, no, no, we'll be around forever. We've always been, you know, a foundational part of a university. You know, the classics and archaeology, you have to have that to keep a university respectable. We will always get appropriations. And now, uh, 20 years after that, 25 years later, our positions are being canceled around the country where the positions are not being renewed when somebody retires, appropriations are down, fieldwork funding is down. um, Many classics departments are going to be closing. I foresaw all of this, but I couldn't communicate that. And I was saying, we need to tap into popular entertainment to help people appreciate, uh, use the popular entertainment as a gateway into what's really valuable in antiquity. And I said, we need Indiana Jones on our side. So that's the way I approached it. I'm, I'm not embarrassed about what I see in the films because... When it teaches you about why is archaeology fascinating, then it's sharing that with an audience we'll never have as professionals. And when Indy's being a tomb raider instead of an archaeologist, that's an, an opportunity for us to teach some history. So I didn't have a problem with it, but uh, my colleagues sure did. So that's, that's how they look at it from the inside.
3: Uh, was the Indiana Jones films uh, a, a, an influence for you with, with going into this field and, and choosing this?
0: Absolutely. Yep, um, I mean, and it's and it's Raiders, pure and simple, for me. Um, Raiders is is a totally different film than the others to me, and and it's that way for me with Star Wars. The original film just affects me in a completely different way, and Raiders just awakens something in me. I mean, I I had seen the Two Common Treasures when I was really little in Washington, and that just left me with questions that have been with me all my life, but I never understood, like, I didn't know what an archaeologist was until I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now I understood there were people that went and found those artifacts and studied those cultures. But I didn't think of that as something you could actually do with your life until I met ancient history professors in college. And it was, I didn't expect it, but I loved the courses. And I would go and talk to them in office hours. And um, I said something like, "I, I, I wish I could do this for a living. And one of the guys just said, why don't you? And that just completely took me aback. It had never occurred to me that you could actually do this for a living. And that just really blew my mind. But once I knew that was possible, I said, that's for me. Because what I saw on screen in Raiders is like, that's what I want. I want the leather. I want the guns. I want the airplane. That's my style of archaeology. <laughs> and that horrified my, my department. You know, like um, they, they just, they, they really didn't want to see that. But the students loved it.
3: It makes total sense because, yeah, it's, 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 it's a way in. It's a, way, it's, it's, a, it's a step in because I know, you know, what, I was five years old when Rare's the Lost Ark came out, I think, and I didn't know what an archaeologist was. But, yeah, even then, I was like, that looks like the coolest job in the world.
0: <laughs> and I would draw on crazy stuff from Indiana Jones in as many ways as I possibly could in my career. So when I'm a tour guide in the Peruvian Andes, so I'm an Inca tour guide for a while, and there's these switchbacks that you drive up uh, to, to reach Machu Picchu. So your, your tourist bus full of your tourists, you've got to go up all these switchbacks because this big, huge granite hillside is so steep. And I'm thinking of that sergeant, that German sergeant on, in the truck chase who crawls across the top of the truck to get Indy, right? And, and it's not Indiana Jones, but that's an Indiana Jones action thing. And it's like, I want to live it. So I'm on top of the van going up the switchbacks to the top of Machu Picchu and this was just bloody excellent man I mean I'm looking down into this valley full of fog there's condors swirling around and the, the people in the van are just like oh my god oh my god senor please come down you can't do that and it was just great and I I'm looking down in the valley and I look up right when a branch comes and smacks me and nearly knocks me off the van and it just felt right I didn't care it was just great <laughs> So everything that that movie taught me how to live, um, I'm just tremendously grateful for that because so much of it has become real for me. And I just, when I saw it, I didn't know that was possible. But whether it's a gateway for, you know, you enjoy Spielberg movies from now on, or you enjoy, you know, Laura Croft and Tomb Raider, you enjoy that genre, whatever way you end up enjoying it, it's so rich and powerful as an artwork that uh, I just, I celebrate the fact that it offers so many gateways to ways that you can enrich your life. And I've done it through archaeology and adventure, but uh, you you can do it through history and movies. It's, it's wonderfully rich. And I just love that about it.
2: Yeah. It's, it's cool comparing it to Star Wars for how much the Star Wars films have kind of inspired people to get into science or filmmaking or art in general. And that, the Indiana Jones films and Raiders in particular kind of were able to do the same sort of thing with a slightly different genre and still get people excited about science and get excited about history, which ordinarily people aren't excited about.
0: Exactly. I mean, I think many people I've talked to, you know, I always thought history was the most boring thing. When I, when I was in middle school or high school, I thought history was boring. And then I went to college and suddenly it was fascinating. And I realized I just hadn't encountered it taught in a way that was interesting. And when I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, I felt the same thing I'd felt when I'd seen those Tutankhamun treasures, that there's something really powerful here that is rewarding and fascinating. It's not boring at all. I want to understand these people. Why did they make these things this way? And I wanted to understand how could a civilization ever reach such a high level and then decline? How was that possible? And I thought, this must be the most important question in the world." And I thought there must be people working on this all over the world to protect us from, from the same kind of fate. And uh, I was really astonished when I, I grew up and find out that, no, there, what, what rules today is hubris. You know, well, yes, collapse, this happened to every other great civilization, but it'll never happen to us. We don't need to worry about those lessons. And I thought, "Wow, so this is how it happens. <laughs> so I, I feel like I asked those questions as a little kid, and uh, it's like like somebody upstairs is saying, you wanted to know? I'm going to show you. <laughs> but it's, it, Raiders is so different because Debbie Fine, whom you've mentioned in earlier episodes of Blast Points, right? You've given her credit where it's due. She was the researcher who fed all the historical information to Lawrence Kasten while he's writing the script because Raiders is so full of the tremendous accuracy that I've ended up pursuing around the world by accident. And it traces back to Debbie Fine, because she was such a great researcher. And then Lawrence Kasdan, because he was, he was not a researcher himself. He was not particularly interested in that. But he made great use of what Debbie Fine gave to him. So the script that he produced is packed with all of these references to Indiana Jones doesn't just jump across a river, he jumps across the Ukabamba River. And, you know, he's not just anywhere in northern Peru. He's in Chachapoyas. So all these specifics in the script that he created gave the crew the idea that this was supposed to be a really serious, accurate period picture. And that was not at all the intention of George Lucas or Steven Spielberg. You read American Cinematographer and Steven Spielberg talks about how, oh, this is not any kind of a documentary. It doesn't represent the way the times were. But you go to the film and everything's accurate. I mean, the the little Nazi badge that Tote wears is accurate. The cars are accurate. Um, It's incredible. And, And the authenticity that is throughout Raiders is astounding for an action picture. There's just nothing else like it. And I was at a loss to understand why was all this great work done for Raiders in a way that hadn't been done for other films. And and I finally trace it back to Debbie Fine's research and Lawrence Caston being sharp enough to be able to incorporate that even as he's creating a great story. So I end up talking to Norman Reynolds about this. And he said, well, David, you know, it's all there in the script. I mean, they're mentioning all these specific things. So we thought that's the director's intent. And he said, in an art department, we always want to do a good job of it. But usually the directors just don't really care and there's not time. But this script seemed to give us a mandate to go and get it right. So we go to the British Museum and we're copying down the hieroglyphs and everything's accurate and based on something real and that we just thought that's what they wanted because the script gave that impression. And it was a huge accident. Can you believe that?
3: (laughs) Wow. there's something so very Star Wars about that too that you know that and also yeah, it makes me think that too if like later you you always hear uh, you know, we talk about it all the time with education as the key, Lucas and all the charities and all the educational charities and and especially the young Indiana Jones Show was like a weekly history lesson, uh, more so maybe than like something like Temple of Doom. But you got to think that that perhaps started by accident on Raiders. Then,
0: well, it was fascinating because I I gave my I do a program called the Archaeology of Indiana Jones, and I've given this across the country, and I I gave it once in North Carolina when uh, another guest that they had there was the documentarian who had produced for George Lucas all the documentaries that went with the episodes of Young Indiana Jones in when they they finally released these together with uh, in a package that was meant for schools to use. The documentarian saw my presentation and he came out and he said, David, you know, George doesn't know about any of this. (laughs) He said, he has no idea. He said, I had no idea. We just all thought the movies were pure fantasy. And then, oh, well, we'll do young Indiana Jones and it's got this historical background. We'll use Indiana Jones to teach. He said, George has no idea. I'm telling you. That's when I started to realize, oh, I'm, I'm on to something that that's other people don't realize. And so just the farther I pushed it, the farther it went. I mean, all this got started when Paramount hired me to look into maybe we were going to do a feature on the, on the box set of the Indiana Jones trilogy, as it was at the time. Um, they thought maybe we'll produce some documentaries to go with this. And they heard that there was an archaeologist at Skywalker Ranch. And so they said, you know, well, we don't know if we're going to do this, but can you look into the research? So they paid me to research the material. And I said, there's, there's wonderful material for Raiders. Um, there's less for the other two films. And, and I said, you know, with, with Last Crusade, it's a literary tradition. So there is no archaeology except Petra in it. But, you know, the Holy Grail is a literary tradition. It's, it's just all fiction. So they said, you know, that's just going to be too confusing. If, if we have to say Raiders of the Lost Ark is packed solid with history and Temple of Doom is this mishmash with a little bit of thuggy thrown in and and then t- The Last Crusade is a literary tradition. It, it, it's just going to be too confusing. So they liked what I'd done and Frank Marshall and Steven Spielberg actually approved a script that I'd written. But Paramount ended up deciding that it was just too complicated. So I got paid to start researching all of this. I'm looking into it. And that's when I found out, wait a minute, this goes much deeper than I would ever have guessed. And that's what started the archaeology of Indiana Jones.
3: Okay. So yeah, again, what, what year was this then? This was...
0: That's happening around 99 or 2000.
3: So the, this has been kind of floating around in the back of your head, going deeper into this this archaeology of Indiana Jones. You've already you've done the Tunisia expeditions already. You found the, you've gone out there with Rick McCallum, found the homestead, the cantina, the crate dragon bones. When did the Indy quest start to start to ramp up a little bit more?
0: That was uh, I think two thousand three was when they brought me back to the ranch because I wasn't working full time there anymore at that point. But Paramount brought me back to do that research. And I ended up spending a lot of time in the archives for this and some other projects. Um, like They had me at the archives. It uh, was great working with Layla French there. I was the curator. But, like, they would ask me about the Indiana Jones stuff. Whenever they'd find something in the archives that they didn't know what it was, they would say, can you get David in here? So they had me curate the Indiana Jones whips that remained in the archives collections for when they wanted to donate one for charity, like they would come to me for that sort of thing. And I was always honored. It was a privilege to work with them. And and I really enjoyed those opportunities. And at one point, we had the Grail Diary. I was looking through that. There's the one original hero prop. And I'm looking at this and saying, wow, this is really beautiful. I said, you know, what happens if there's a leak in the ceiling and this is just wiped out? Is there any record of this? And Layla said, well, no. And I said, well, shouldn't we document like every page of this in case something happens to the original since there's only one? And she said, yeah, that's a good idea. And so we did a proposal and they got approved. And so I spent a week or so um, going through every page of the of the Hero Grail Diary and documenting it. And that was about the same time when this this uh, Indiana Jones documentary was being considered that I was, I was hired to do the research for. And once the, the project, we, we considered it, we decided it wasn't a good idea. But I was too fascinated at that point to stop. So I went on in 2004 on my own and started carrying it on. And that's when I I went around to find more of the filming locations, the ones in Hawaii, the ones in California, um, and start putting all of these pieces together and, and realizing how extraordinary the historical connections with Raiders really are.
2: Were there artifacts or remnants of the shooting sets at any of the other locations?
0: Let's see. Yeah, there were in Kauai. So the temple entrance that uh, that that Robert Watts called it the mosquito hole. We hated that place. The, The waterfalls where Indy confronts Baranka. Um, and then he turns around and goes up the cliff to the temple entrance, which had originally been a really elaborate structure early on in the story conferences and in the storyboards. You can see this, but it gets cut down because they, they, all of these decisions that affected raiders, the, the budget constrained raiders in ways that constantly disciplined it and made it stronger. The, the compromises in Raiders, because they couldn't spend all the money they wanted, made the movie stronger in in one way after another. So for the Temple of the Chachapoyan Warriors, they decide we're going to put all of the budget into the interior, because that's where all the action happens. So we're not going to do the big exterior. We're going to cut that down to a bare minimum. And in Kauai, the, the styrofoam that that was represented the Inca stonework that was the entrance to the temple, that was still there. But... Uh, um, it's really the stuff that was left in tunisia that was remarkable other other than that that was that was about it i think one of the strangest stories if you want if you want a weird indiana jones story the flying wing okay so i'm going to research the flying wing that's part of the job i started it for paramount and what i'd found was well the production had looked into american flying wings And that's what it had been based on. And if you look at the Steranko painting, the and the Joe Johnston production paintings, those are based on the American flying wing of the 40s. And George Lucas just liked that idea. I don't know if he saw it in War of the Worlds or something like that. But that's all they had in mind. Some kind of version of the American flying wing. Wouldn't it be cool if the Germans had built something like that in the 30s? That was it for the film. And they, they hand the idea to Ron Cobb, who has, he has some knowledge of German aeronautics that ends up shaping his version of the wing. Joe Johnston does his treatments of it. Norman Reynolds ends up having the final one built by Vickers. And I talked to Howard Kazanjian in, I think it was 2007 or 2008. And we were both at a Lucasfilm event in Los Angeles. And I told him about how I was pursuing this stuff. And then I had found there really was a German flying wing. And in the 30s. And he said, no, 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 David, you don't understand. You fans get carried away. The things we put on the screen, I know they seem so real to you guys, but I'm telling you it's pure fiction. And I'm saying, no, Howard, seriously. I I have gotten on the the track of this, and I have gotten permission from the Smithsonian to see the original Nazi flying wing. And I think the poor guy just thought I was crazy. (laughs) Because at the time, I'm dressed as Indiana Jones, which doesn't make me look very credible.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right,
0: right. And he said, "He said, no, David, I heard there's some real archaeologist that Lucasfilm's got working on some of this stuff. And I'm saying, yeah, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and he's looking at me and it's like, you're dressed as Indiana Jones, you're here as a fan. I said, no, they, Luke, this is for Lucasfilm. I, I have to play Indiana Jones on stage for this Lucasfilm event they hired me to do it because I'm the one who can crack the bullwhip. And I don't think he believed any of it because it all just sounds ridiculous. But that was an L.A. celebration where they, you know, that's where they had Boba Fett do the rocket pack shortly after that. I was on up there with Steve Sansweet who was playing an Ewok and they had as a surprise bonus, they had Indiana Jones come out of the wings and whip the Ewok off the stage with a bullwhip and the whole audience just, you know, thanks Indy and says, hooray, he got rid of the Ewok because we hate the Ewok. So it was, it was a great stage. But it made me look like I'm some crazy fan when I'm getting to meet Howard Kazanjian, who's this, this great guy. I'm so glad to meet him, and I just looked like I was nuts.
2: Did you ever get to talk to him again, or was that the only time you met him?
0: That I had interviewed him earlier about Star Wars, but he—that was you know—he didn't. It was over the phone, and he didn't know who I was again. But no, we'll have to follow that up someday because it was shortly after that that I went to Washington. And it had taken me a long time to work out the clearance to see the real Nazi flying wing, because the Horton brothers really had had a, a twin engine prop version of a flying wing in the 30s. But the one that survived the war was the jet engine version, the Horton 229. And this was something that's been in a government warehouse almost exactly like the one at the end of Raiders, not quite that big, but very similar. And I got in to see this thing, and it was it's practically a legend, but there it was. And I got a whole team in. I, I ran a, a consulting group called Phaeton Group, and I got approval for the entire team to get in there and examine that thing, and it all only happened because of the archaeology of Indiana Jones. And right after that, I took this to National Geographic and I told them about it. And we had this big meeting at National Geographic headquarters. It just blew everybody's minds. They said, you're serious? And I showed them the pictures and it ended up leading to a big special, uh, a big documentary special that National Geographic had put together um, that it finally got this thing out of obscurity and, you know, had people doing studies on its stealth characteristics all of this happened because Paramount hired me to look into the archaeology of Indiana Jones.
3: I wonder if Howard Kazanjian saw this National Geographic special. <laughs> it's that Indiana Jones guy that was whipping the Yiwok.
0: Yeah, maybe by now, finally, my reputation is rehabilitated. I, I hope I've, I've won some of Howard's respect at this point.
3: Well, I know I have been... Amazed by your Instagram posts, your your Facebook post with with the journal, and you've been posting these pages from your journal, full of this incredible Raiders of the Lost Ark information. This journal that you had is this all from this period of time?
0: Yeah. Okay. So I I started keeping notes early on, um, and so I get like I kept a file of these notes. So when I'm in, in Egypt and where places that Indiana Jones is supposed to have been, or I'm in Tunisia where the film crew was, you know, I've got notebooks that I keep whenever I travel and anything that was relevant to Raiders, I was collecting. But it was in 2003 that I had a journal from Morocco that my father gave to me before he died. And I had been keeping this thing pristine. And then I lose my dad in an accident. And I thought, you know, I don't want to die having kept this journal pristine. I want to die with it filled with my adventures. So I had, I had been keeping it because I didn't know any project that was good enough to fill these pages of this journal that my dad had given me. And I thought, you know, I want to go and I want to make the mistakes. And I won't know exactly how to do it when I start. I'm going to make, a, you know, the pages aren't going to look right, but I'll figure it out as I go. And it was wonderfully rewarding to go ahead and just take the plunge to mess up some of the pages, make mistakes, but start also making things that were really inspiring. And the more I did those pages, the more it drove me to want to to find more and discover more so that I had more to record. So that journal happened starting in 2003. And then I would incorporate the the notes that I'd taken previously in in Peru or Egypt or wherever like that. Those got incorporated into it after the fact. So it's an ongoing project that drew on expeditions that happened before, but also was carried on for, for quite a few years after that. So that's where it comes from.
3: That's wonderful. I love that. I love that. Wow. As you're doing this research, as you're traveling around, you're following the footsteps of Indiana Jones on screen and behind the scenes. I mean, it's hard to top the the German flying wing. But what what are some of the other things that just absolutely surprised you and shocked you as you as you did your Raider, Raiders archaeology?
0: Well, like the China Clippers was something I didn't know anything about when I started this. And at first, you know, back in the 80s, you see a picture like this. You could see a big airplane. Um, If you see people getting on board, you know, we knew how to judge the special effects. We knew that wasn't all a model. So I knew that was a real plane and I wanted to see it. So I tracked down that real plane and I get aboard and I think this is just spectacular. And I start learning from the Western Aerospace Museum in Oakland, where this was located, that, well, this wasn't actually what was there historically in 1936, but all those real planes were destroyed. But there once was a plane called a China Clipper. And I, I plunged into the aeronautics and learning about all of this. And I ended up developing all of this expertise in 1930s aeronautics, because I started with the China Clipper and one thing led to another. So that was, that's, it wasn't necessarily surprising, but um, to find out that that something like the plane that Indiana Jones traveled in once upon a time that level of luxury was real, and there was nothing about it that was fictional. I mean that that plane that you see in the film had traveled all the way up and down Africa. It had flown over the pyramids. It had flown over Victoria Falls, and it was it was you know retired by the time they they filmed it for the movie. But it had been owned for many years by Howard Hughes. And it had been kept in flight-ready condition because that was Hughes' orders for nearly all of the planes that he owned. So when Hughes dies, it gets put on the auction block for like pennies on the dollar and bought by a guy and his brother who are just like, really, we can buy a four-engine 1940s flying boat for a few thousand bucks? Sure. And they end up with this giant plane and not, you know, don't know what to do with it. I mean, it's just great stories. Things like that were a big surprise to me. But I, I think probably the, as big a surprise as the flying wing was going to northern Peru into Chachapoyas and finding out how hard it really was to get there, even in the modern world at the time. I mean, and finding out there really was a place that corresponded to the temple of the Chachapoyan warriors in a script. And even more than that, they're, they're on the way, they're, they're going through the jungle, they they pull back the vines, and there's a scary statue, the giant stone head thing, right? And the porters all run screaming. And there really was something like that. I'll have it I'll have it up on in Instagram before too long. They were called Puramachus, and they look something like the Easter Island stone heads, but they were tombs of Chachapoyan warriors. We think they're about 600 years old, but nobody's ever dug them up, so we don't know. But there's a skull on top of each one, and these things are maybe 12 feet tall and pretty scary looking. So that's what the real Indiana Jones would have seen in 1936. And the real city that, that represented the temple of the Chachapoyan warriors, it sits up on a hill and it's up a cliff just like the one in Raiders. So, I mean, I, it, I had to go in on horseback. The only way to cross the river, Indiana Jones steps across this little stream that they film in Hawaii. I get to Chachapoyas and it's like, this is the Utkabamba river. And where's the bridge? Oh, there's, is no bridge, but we have these cables stretched across and there's kind of a skateboard attached to the lower cable like a like a roller skate hanging upside down so you stand on that and use the upper cable and slide yourself over hand over hand but there's just a couple of cables that's it so i'm going across the river like this and then it's like what do we do from here on well see if you can find some farmer who will you know rent you a few of his horses for a day <laughs> wow and that's the way you get anywhere and so i rent horses my buddy and i were we're heading up to Quelap which is this giant Chachapoyan city that's really there. And it was only still in the process of being cleared. And we get to the entrance. It's up a Steep Hill. The entrance is this narrow, narrow entrance into stonework, straight up a hill. And it's so much like the movie. I mean, it's it's more open. There's not as much jungle. But I'm there in northern Peru, and this stuff is for real. And I'm going into this this narrow entrance. The entire city it has these like like 30 foot walls all the way around the top of a hillside it's incredibly well defended and there's only three places you can get in and the main entrance was the one i'm going up and i'm walking up this with a with a, a local guy who's who's there to try and help me understand what we're looking at and he says this whole narrow entrance is to defend the city and i said so if it gets attacked he said yeah so they can roll things down on the people who are attacking <laughs> oh, no. And it's like, seriously, because I know Steven Spielberg got the rolling boulder from an Uncle Scrooge comic. That's where that comes (laughs) from. But I'm in northern freaking Peru. And this place really is built like that. The opening shot of the movie, this is just too weird to be real. The opening shot of the movie, we get the dissolve from the Paramount Mountain to some mountain in Hawaii, right? Right. Well, I I later fly all over Hawaii in a helicopter to try and find that peak. But, of course, it's not based on a real mountain, right? Except you get to northern Peru, and there really is a landmark peak like that. That if you're trying to find your way through Chachapoyas, you're going to orient yourself on Mount Shubat, which is 12,000 feet tall. It's this distinctive peak that rises above the ridgeline. And, I mean, I'm looking at the real version of this mountain peak that was in Raiders. And it's not supposed to be real, guys. It's supposed to be just made up, <laughs> but it's really there. And that's just something strange was going on with Raiders because I kept running in to strange things like that, like the flying wing where it wasn't supposed to be real, but it was. The mountain wasn't supposed to be real, but it was. This just happened over and over, and that that was pretty mind-blowing.
3: It's mind-blowing for us hearing it too. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So at this point, it's been quite a few years since you started this Indiana Jones journey. Are there still adventures that you're hoping to take on this journey? Or do you kind of feel like you've found it all?
0: It is not finished. I have not yet done Nepal. And I don't expect there to be a lot there. And yet, because it's the... the the film is it just uses Nepal you know, very incidentally as a setting, so there really shouldn't be a lot there to throw any light on raiders, and yet, everywhere else I've gone, the quest has been rewarding in ways that it never should have been. So I just assume when I show up in Nepal, I'm going to find some kind of far-out amazing things. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be cool. I mean, in the archives at Lucasfilm, I find, like because I'm always finding stuff there, and Nobody knows what it is. I have to figure it out. So once, one day, I'm in there looking at stuff, and there's some things on the edge of the Indiana Jones area, but we're not really sure what it might belong to, and what do I find but an abominable snowman footprint. <laughs> okay. It's plaster cast, and I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, that belongs to, what does the little nameplate say? Abner Ravenwood. <laughs>
3: Wait, wait.
0: (laughs) There's Abner Ravenwood's 1931 casting of an abominable snowman footprint. It matches the photographs that Eric Shipton took in the Himalayas of a real footprint of something they still haven't identified, but it matches that. So whoever in the art department, as usual, they did their research. It's not just some footprint. It's the Eric Shipton monster footprint that was really photographed on Mount Everest. So I'm looking at this and I look at Layla and she says, don't look at me. We don't know where that came from. And I said, but it says Avenue Ravenwood. This is part of Raiders. And she said, well, you know, don't, don't ask us. And I said, well, I'm going to find this thing and it's gotta be in the movie. And I looked at every single frame and I finally found it. And it is there. It is in the Raven bar, but you would never have known. So who knows, who knows what's waiting for me in Nepal.
3: That is incredible. <laughs> It's fascinating hearing you you had this past with studying archaeology but it's almost like you were the Indiana Jones of Lucas film going through the archives finding things like this this Abner Ravenwood snow monster foot <laughs>
0: It, it was, it was, it was so fortunate to be there at that time because like there's some, there was big stuff, man. Like, so there'd be a big mummy case. Like one day we're, we're clearing out a back area of the archives and here's a big mummy case. And I say, wow, that's really impressive. I've never seen photographs of that. And, uh, they say, yeah, we don't know. Is it something that came from maybe young Sherlock Holmes because George might've been connected with somebody connected with that. Who knows? Because of Steven Spielberg, but we know it doesn't come from Raiders. And so we don't know what it's doing here. Well, I found the mummy case in the well of souls because they told me flat out. There is no mummy case in Raiders. We look David, <laughs> it's not part of Raiders. So don't try and give it to that. <laughs> but I found the mummy case and it's like, this thing is, you know, eight feet tall. I mean, this is big stuff in the archives. I do a sketch in my journal of the Ark Shrine that that surrounds the Ark of the Covenant and the Well of Souls, and I had spotted, it's never clear in the movie, but there's there's like a big falcon on the front of this thing. You know the best place you can see this? It's the Kenner toy. (laughs) They gave the specifications to Kenner. That's the best representation you're going to see any place of the Ark Shrine until the making of the Indiana Jones movies book came out, and you can see Norman Reynolds' sketch for it. But I was trying to put these pieces together just from the little bits you can see in the film. And I worked out, I think that's an Egyptian falcon there. So I sketched out the falcon that I thought must be there if you could see it clearly. And Don Bees at ILM, one of the, one of the great special effects guys at ILM, he sees my sketch and he says, David, that looks like that eagle that's down at the archives and nobody knows what it is. <laughs> I said, Really? I'll have to check this out. I go go down to the archives. My next opportunity, I said, I hear you got an eagle. They said, yeah, the eagle. Do you know what that is? And I said, I might. (laughs) And I go and find the lost Egyptian falcon from the Ark Shrine in Raiders. And I finally put an identification on the thing. So, yeah, I was doing the archaeology of Indiana Jones filmmaking (laughs) in a way that I never expected to.
3: That's just amazing.
0: And I ended up being the bullwhip expert at the ranch, right? So whenever somebody shows up and they hear there's an archaeologist at the ranch, they always drag me out of marketing. And it's like, somebody else wants to learn the bullwhip. Jeremy Bullock's here. He wants to learn bullwhip. So I go and teach Boba Fett the bullwhip. And Ray Park, Ray Park is not going to leave Skywalker <laughs> Ranch without having I mean, learned the bullwhip, but you know, so oh yeah, some guys got the bullwhip, well, get out right now. And he of course learns the bullwhip faster than anybody else I'd ever taught it to. I mean, in, you know, in 10 minutes, Ray Park has cracked the bullwhip. So, um, <laughs> I was just the bullwhip guy at Skywalker Ranch. So I would give clinics out in back of the main house sometimes. And it was, it was great fun.
3: Wow. <laughs> Let's keep living the dream, living the dream.
0: Now, you guys know I was Boba Fett for two years, right?
3: I've, I've, I've heard legend, but I re- I really would love to just hear about it.
0: So I'm in marketing. I'm building StarWars.com. And one day, in Russia's Jeannie Cole, the glamorous blonde publicist, and she says, how tall are you? And like, I've never had that asked of me in like an accusing fashion. Like, did I do something wrong with my height? And I say, like, five ten and a half, maybe 5'11, somewhere around there, and She looks down, she says, get down to the archives, you're late for your fitting. I have no idea what's going on. I get down to the archives and they are waiting there with the Boba Fett suit from Empire. And they need to do a shoot. And they said, we've never had somebody on the ranch who fit the costume. And it's so irreplaceable, we don't ever allow outside people to wear it. So we can have stormtroopers at events, we can have Imperial officers, we've got multiple Darth Vader suits, but there's only the original film used Boba Fett stuff. So we need to have somebody, if we're going to have use it, we need to have somebody that we could fire if they break it. (laughs) (laughs) They said, but it's one of George's favorite characters and we want to have Boba Fett appear by surprise at the Smithsonian Magic of Myth exhibition VIP opening. And you're going to be Boba Fett. And if you fit in this thing, well, I get into the suit and it fits like it's tailored. I mean, it fits me exactly and i mean the, the the i'm looking at the cuffs i mean everything fits perfectly and at the time i was a volunteer firefighter at the ranch so there were there were times when i would take off my breathing gear and run over to the archives and put on my boba fett gear and what was so cool was that the boba fett suit didn't feel like a costume it felt like a uniform because so much of it was metal and you're putting the backpack onto the racks and everything and it just it felt like real gear so i just i loved this but i didn't want to play the character without a blessing from Jeremy Bullock. So I called him and said, Jeremy, they want me to do this for the for playing and for this VIP event, but and I know the masked actors often don't get the respect they deserve, but I respect your performance and I don't want to do anything with the character that's out of keeping with with what you created, because I know you did something with that that wasn't just walking around in the suit. So tell me about it. Why did it work? What how did you make this work? And he really appreciated being called about this. And so he gave me the whole debrief on how he played Boba Fett and what he put into his physical performance. And he explained, he said, he said, well, I had to figure out, you know, cause George is not going to give you direction on this and I've got to bring meaning to this character and, and I've got to find something about him that will make me have some identity to put into him Cause I'm a real actor. And he, he said, you know, the, the clothes that I wear in a, in a West End production, you know, when I'm supposed to be playing some industrial tycoon, I mean, I want a real expensive suit because it just helps you play the role. And so once I understood that Boba Fett suit is covered in weapons, then I thought about the fact that like, OK, this guy is already visually incredibly extrovert. So he doesn't need to do any big gestures. He can play it slow and quiet because he's so totally extrovert with just looking at him. And I, and Jeremy Bullock said, you know who he is under that mask. He's Clint Eastwood from a fistful of dollars. <laughs> he said, that's how I play Boa Fett. And he said, you know, the little bolt on the side of the helmet. He said, I figured that's where he put his cigarette. <laughs> so he said, "Boa Fett doesn't make showy gestures because his costume's already showy. He is, is just playing it slow and easy. He's like a big cat. The big cat doesn't need to show off. It's ready to kill you at any second. It knows it's in charge. And when it's time to move, he's faster than anybody else. He's already thought it through. It's already happened. It's too late. That's Boba Fett. And so I thought, okay, that was really helpful. And I took that to Washington and I played the character that way. And we had half the senators in Washington for that VIP opening. And it was incredible to watch people because this was back, you know, what was this in the late nineties, something like that, early two thousands. Cosplay was not what it is today. Back then people hadn't seen these characters outside of the movies. So I'm watching senators look at Boba Fett and like they back up and give me space <laughs> because they're not going to mess with Boba Fett. <laughs> and it was just fascinating to watch adults react to the character as if he's real because the costume was made so well. And because I played it like it was real. Cause I was trying to do justice to Jeremy Bullock's performance.
3: Well, and I, and I, I can't help thinking too the, the correlation there with, I mean, even going around and looking for the Raiders locations, it, I don't know, just the power of what we see on screen and how it still affects us to this day, 40 years later. It's it's just a testament to to what they created.
0: It really is. And this was something that I I would try and talk about this with my archaeology colleagues, but we just couldn't connect about this. For them, there was this big divide between there was the real world and there was fiction. And the real world had value and fiction was just lightweight nonsense. And they didn't want to be bothered by that. And I didn't see it that way. And and I felt like, of course, the real world has a particular kind of value, but look at the way these stories inspire people and change lives. You know, Dr. McCoy helps how many people discover they want to actually be a doctor? And that's a performer writing lines that are written to him. None of these people were medical people, but they end up creating this character who inspires people. And... I mean, how many decisions have been affected by the stories that George Lucas told about his personal demons played out with Luke Skywalker and his father and all of that? I mean, decisions in the real world get affected by these stories when they're crafted well enough and presented in a way that's powerful. And to me, that has tremendous validity. It's not something that just you dump in another category that's separate from the real world. There is validity in these stories when they're told in a powerful way. And I think those of us who have been affected by that, we know that, but um, I, I was not able to sell that in the halls of academia.
3: So, yeah, I guess that leads us to, it's the 40th anniversary of Raiders of the Lost Ark. What does that movie in particular mean for you still today? 40 years, obviously, to say the least, a huge inspiration on your life, but why Raiders? Why that movie in particular? What is for you still... All this time later, what is the magic of Raiders of the Lost Ark for you?
0: I'll tell you what the magic of Raiders is because of what Lawrence Kasdan did with the character. And all of it's delivered with, with majesty with John Williams' music and Steven Spielberg's direction and Norman Reynolds' art direction and Harrison Ford's charismatic performance. But Raiders told an adventure story of an adventure that was so powerful that it had the capacity to change a man like Indiana Jones. We see that Indiana Jones is this incredibly resilient person. I mean, we look to him for inspiration. When you feel like you've got to give up, you think about Indy being dragged behind that truck, and that man will not give up, and he will hang on to that whip and crawl back up on the truck. And when I'm in a situation where I just think I can't take this anymore, I think about that, and I think he did it. I have to do it. And this strong character who will never quit, who says, what truck? Who will never let go of his quest. This is a story that can affect this man, that can leave him a different person than he was at the beginning of the movie. He stands in that map room, and he is moved by what he sees. When that sun hits the the crystal, the crystal reveals the location of the real well of souls. There's a a look of wonder in his face. And Steven Spielberg talks about uh, using music to conjure that up. And he was very proud of using that as a directorial technique. He played music during the, the re- recording of that scene. And that's what puts the emotion into the into the actor's face. And, and it really delivers that. When John Williams creates his own music for the scene, it takes us all into that moment. That's a powerful man who's being affected by what he's seeing. And at the end of the movie, it's all been hocus pocus and nonsense to him, remember? I mean, he's never seen anything in his life to make him respect the Ark of the Covenant. But by the end of the movie, Lawrence Kasdan said, this is a movie about an atheist who has become an agnostic. And and even more than that, on the steps in Washington at the end, this is a man who has seen that, well, it's worth losing the treasure to get something that's meaningful in your life, that the treasure is not the most meaningful thing. And he is willing to let the treasure go if he can get Marion on the island. And in the end, he does lose the treasure, but he gets Marion. And we can see that the guy recognizes that that's maybe not so bad. And this is a man who's been after treasure hunts all his life. But we see in this movie a a level of depth that's in him at the end that wasn't there before. And when I think about experiences that I hope I grow from in life... I think about the fact that if if somebody as tough and strong as Indiana Jones can be affected and changed by what he goes through, then I hope I can be too. And that's, that's a lesson that is valuable no matter where you are in life. And that's why the film is still relevant for me.
3: Okay, so here we go. We've got some Indiana Jones rapid-fire questions. Gabe, what is our first one? Your favorite Raiders John Williams musical moment.
0: It's going to be the map room, because that's what I felt when I saw the real thing. I was at the great temple of Abu Simbel, and watching the sunlight creep down the walls towards the deepest, inmost sanctuary at the far end. And it's silent, but I felt felt something in my heart because I'm watching celestial mechanics that were put into play 3000 years ago and they are still working and it just lifts the hair on your arms. And I, I could not convey what that moment is like, except to point you to that scene and say, John Williams knows what that moment's like and he can take us all there with that music. That's why.
3: Wow. Okay. Favorite Rares of the Lost Ark background character.
0: Oh, that's tough because there's good ones all throughout. Who is the favorite? Now, okay, it's a strange choice maybe, but I might name Satipo. Okay, and why? Because that performance, Alfred Molina, it's a thankless job when you have to play the loser. And you see so many actors who want to make the loser guy cool because they're embarrassed they have to play the loser. It takes a man of courage to go in and play the loser as a loser <laughs> and satipo is so terrified at everything that's going to happen that he makes the sequence much more fun than it would have been i mean when he's screaming his head off when Forrestall comes out on the spikes that that makes that moment his performance really puts all the emotion into that sequence because he's such a coward and he's so terrified and molina's performance is a really generous one to the audience he is letting that character be a total loser so i really appreciate satipo for making the temple background for making the temple so much fun
3: we can all hear that scream in our head right (laughs) right (laughs) when you said when Forestal comes out
0: (laughs) right, right (laughs) it's wonderful
2: all right, the your favorite face melt at the end.
0: Oh, isn't that tough? But I think I think it's going to be Dietrich. I think it's going to be Dietrich. I mean, totes, of course, that's cool. But Dietrich is just nasty. I mean, the whole guy's got his brain vacuumed out. I mean, that's nasty. <laughs> So uh, that's 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 my favorite one. I mean, I'm always going to enjoy watching Tote get his. But uh, and I wish that, you know, I wish we could have seen the Belloc thing a little more clearly. I wish they hadn't had to put the fire over it. But uh, but for what we end up with, I'm I'm glad to see Dietrich just get vacuumed out.
3: (laughs) Okay, favorite Belloc line of dialogue.
0: Oh, again, uh, that's a tough because, boy, when you I got to to meet Paul Freeman and and meet with that guy and just his eyes, hey, that's just he's got a magnetic look. What a worthy adversary for Indiana Jones. So, I think it's got to be when he's sitting with Indy in the bar and saying, you know, that we're 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 not very much different. You know, you and I were very much alike because he knows that's what's gonna hurt this guy the most. This he knows this man. Just had his girl blown up. That's what he thinks. And I'm going to kick him while he's down because that's what I've been doing all of our life. I always take away what he thinks is his victory. And now he's down. I know I am a son of a bitch and I know what is going to make him miserable. And that's going to tell him the truth. I'm going to use the truth and just cut him. You and I are not that much different. And that's going to hurt And that's masterful villainy. So that is impressive to me.
3: Now you're getting nasty. Yeah, I I always Mm -hmm. love that scene. And I feel like I'm reminded of it every time I watch Raiders. It's all one shot. And the the acting going on between Paul Freeman and Harrison Ford, just it's like we're watching theater at that moment.
0: Yeah, and, and boy, did Paul Freeman just—I mean, every line he did, whether it's the the work with Marion in the tent, um, he's just really making it work. So I, he he makes that villain rise to just epic stature for me.
2: All right, the last one. This is a, a question that we we ponder all the time. The monkey—was it a good monkey or an evil monkey?
0: Oh, I think he's an evil monkey. <laughs> i think he's a bad monkey he's given away marion in the basket he knows that she's good and he shouldn't do that that proved the monkey is evil and got his in the end <laughs> so i realize there's room for debate there but but my vote is evil monkey
3: i think it, there there's there's concrete evidence for the evil monkey but sometimes i'm just not sure
0: well, you know, was there was there potential for redemption that was cut short there? Is this a tra- more tragic moment than we see, than we realize? Tell your sister, you were right.
3: <laughs> I think I think of that scene where, where right after Indy thinks Marion was in the truck and he's, he's drinking his, his sadness away. And the monkey seems a little sad. And maybe that's a bit of regret from the monkey.
0: I, I, I could be convinced on that point. So maybe he's he's in the midst of considering. But, you know, then he comes in and he's 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 there with the date. So I I don't know. I I, I can see I can see there being a pang of regret there at the bar. So, yeah, I, I can see that. That's a that's a worthy discussion point.
3: <laughs> Dr. David West Reynolds, this was a serious highlight of Indie Year. This is what our eighth Indie Year episode. This is one of my favorites so far. We uh, we've wanted to talk to you for years and this was just incredible. I don't know, Gabe. What? Yeah,
2: this was better than anything I could have imagined. This is wonderful, and uh, I learned so many things I never knew I wanted to learn, and now I won't be able to stop thinking about them. So, yeah, thank you so much for sharing all these stories with us.
0: Well, it's a pleasure. I'm never in ordinarily in a situation where I I have an audience for these kinds of stories, and there's there's just so many of them because I was in those extraordinary situations and felt very fortunate to be there. But I've, I've rarely had uh, people that would appreciate those stories. So um, I thank you guys for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to share them.
3: How can, if people want to learn more, if people need more indie information and people curious about some of the, the lectures that you give, how can people find out more about all this stuff?
0: Easiest way is the website, davidwestreynolds.com. So that's not hard to hard to remember, and uh, you can get in touch with me that way, and uh, venues can book me that way. Um, on Instagram, I'm at Dr. Time Ranger. Dr. Period. Time Ranger, all one word. And I'm I'm sharing the Indiana Jones material right now, but Time Ranger will eventually uh, share my archaeology of Star Wars material. Also, I have just files like you wouldn't believe on Star Wars material that I created at Skywalker Ranch that was approved as Canon, but, uh, ended up cut from my visual dictionaries just for space. And, um, it's, there's all kinds of stories there. So, uh, I want to share that material and it seems like, uh, Instagram is one place to do that, but I'm also sharing that, uh, on Facebook um, where you can see me at David West Reynolds, PhD. So there are ways to find this material out there and I will enjoy it. If an audience uh, comes there and, and can enjoy this material with me
3: if we'll make it real easy for folks, we'll have all the links to all of that in this episode's show notes, so while you're listening to this, just pull up the show notes and you can have quick and easy access to all that and yeah, you mentioned the visual dictionaries i don't know. I feel like we're gonna have to do this again, and we can just talk about those visual dictionaries because that is a serious part of star wars right now and i I think I think you had a pretty good hand in getting that ball rolling.
0: Well, I, I have certainly been amazing for me to see what's happened with some of the seeds that I planted because I created the crystals in the heart of the lightsaber. I mean, that that's all just, nobody had any plans to do a cutaway lightsaber. And I said, I want to do this because I've got a plan for this. And they, they said, well, but, you know, where are we going to get a plan? There's no time to make one. And I said, I'll, I'll, I'll generate this. I've got an idea. And we brought it in and it got approved at the ranch and sent down to ILM and Don Bees did a, beautiful job of bringing everything to life that I'd drawn and I had you know the idea that that a lightsaber shouldn't be something that a factory could produce that's all of that I put there I put the crystal in the lightsaber because I wanted it to be something that only a Jedi could have you you couldn't have the bad guys just cranking these out of a factory and now that you can go to Disney World and go through this experience because I wrote that stuff. That blows my mind, and the stories that have been written about the kyber crystals and all of that. I mean, th- that's what I wanted to see happen when I planted seeds like that. So some some seeds I planted didn't didn't come out, but others have gone in wonderful directions, and that's been tremendously rewarding for me.
2: Those books are so good and so convincing that you know, looking through them, like you know, none of this is real, but you always second guess yourself because it's just so convincing. Like it feels like a real reference book and and it's and everything looks like it is really there and i think that's why they're just yeah i I love those books so much so good job
0: (laughs) well i'm very happy to hear that that's that's certainly what we tried to do with it and it was um that's that was my influence i wanted to take it seriously i wanted us to try to convince people and and the publisher didn't think that was possible that's why a book like that had not been done before Um, but it took a really talented photographer alex ivanov to photograph those objects in a way that did not give away their limitations. And he put a huge amount of artistry into making them look convincing rather than pathetic. Like the the Death Star Gunner's helmet looked like an old bowling ball that had fallen down a staircase. And we're looking at this pathetic thing. And I'm like, Alex, what are you going to do with this? And he says, I'll take care of it. And he spends the whole afternoon building the lighting rig and shooting this thing. And it comes out beautiful. And you look like it, and that's a Death Star gunner helmet. My God, that's this really powerful thing. It can deflect rays because of the way he shot it. So we wanted to make it seem real, and we did a lot of things to try to, to sell that. So if it came across that way, I'm, I'm very happy to hear it.
3: Wow. Yeah, well, that's. I think that's a tease of what, what could be to come. We would, Yeah, if if your game, we would love to have you back and discuss this more because this has been just an absolute joy having you on.
0: Well, for me too. Thanks very much, gentlemen.
3: I mean seriously right like
2: yeah yeah is is the room spinning for you i think it's still spinning for me right here I, I might have to go lay down after that that was incredible
3: i don't know if you folks at home listening could tell but when he brought up the snow beast foot cast and abner ravenwood and the fact that that's in marion's bar when when we we're recording that, I stood up. I, I I freaked out. I didn't. I couldn't handle it. <laughs> My headphones almost fell off. I was just like, oh, oh I got. I gotta go. I'm out of here. <laughs> Call the nurse. I
2: need a cookie in the one of those little jars of uh, those little cans of orange juice they give you after you faint.
3: Yeah, I'm surprised it just wasn't. Gabe, <sighs> you keep going. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna lay here and be cool. <laughs> It, you know, it, it's, it's been, like we said in the beginning, it's been a dream of ours to have Dr. Reynolds on the show forever. Funny enough, this wasn't the first time I ever talked to him. Back in 2002, I worked at an event with him through through Borders Bookstore, where he was signing copies of his visual dictionaries at the, the Field Museum on the campus of University of Michigan. I don't know. I think this is one of our finest moments. I do. We hoped Indie Year would be something special,
2: and I think Indie Year has been something special. And uh, yeah, another great addition to Indie Year, and we look forward to having more
3: Indie Year next month. This is only month eight of Indie Year. We've got four more to go. What's going to happen? Who knows? We haven't even talked about Crystal Skull yet. <laughs> right? Is four months going to be enough to talk about Crystal Skull? <laughs> Can't say thank you to Dr. David West Reynolds enough. That was—it's just wonderful.
1: Never before have the exploits of one man captured the imagination of the world as Indiana Jones, the hero of the greatest adventure films in history. And now, through Willoughby and Ward, you too can live the adventure with the authentic, genuine leather Indiana Jones jacket. Yes, this is the jacket that is uniquely identified with America's greatest film hero. Worn through fire and storm, the jacket that has survived the heat of the desert, the onslaught of raging waters, the perils of the tropic jungles, and all the hazards of the greatest adventures ever filmed. Handsome, durable, the authentic Indiana Jones jacket is one you'll be proud to own and even prouder to wear. So call the toll-free number on your screen to order your own authentic, genuine leather Indiana Jones jacket and start wearing the jacket that has become a symbol of courage and daring to millions. Use your credit card and call now. We'll ship and charge your account just 32 dollars six a month for eight months.
3: folks apple podcast reviews imagine that when you get done listening to this go over there write a little something nice on there not only does it help more people discover blast points when they're searching for star wars podcasts or good podcasts to listen to or whatever we really love those reviews it brings warm feelings to our hearts makes us so happy to, to hear from you folks and make sure you check
2: out our website BlastPointsPodcast.com and you're following us on Instagram,
3: Twitter, and Facebook, and if you're on Facebook you need to be in our super chill group and If you want to support the show in a different way, we have got the Blast Points Army on Patreon where a couple weeks ago we did our final Bad Batch review episode, we've got review episodes for tons of Mandalorian and we're going to get back to our Recaps of the amazing episode one documentary, The Beginning very soon. But that wraps up episode number two hundred and seventy nine. Indie Year, Dr. David West Reynolds. I'm still sweating. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go lay down again. So thank you, everyone so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye, everybody.
0: Everything goes. Henry Jones, Jr.